and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners, and happy Thanksgiving. Now, over just the past weekend, SpaceX attempted the second flight test of its mega launch system, the Starship. Let's listen to SpaceX's principal integration engineer, John Innsbrucker, explain what, after liftoff, was the next technological test for this massive 28 stories tall space launch system. We are T plus 40 seconds into the flight of Starship. 33 Raptor engines powering the first stage. Power and telemetry nominal. We've heard power and telemetry nominal call out. We're heading downrange over the Gulf of Mexico. Net call-out tells us Starship is through the period of greatest stress on the way to space. Now the next major event is hot staging in just over 90 seconds from now. To get ready, the booster will shut down all but three of the Raptor engines. Clamps holding the two stages together will release, and the Starship's second stage will ignite its engines. Starship will then separate from the Super Heavy booster and head to space. And at the same time, the three engines that are still firing on Super Heavy will flip the booster around. Ten more engines will ignite for the boost back burn, putting the first stage on path for a splashdown in the Gulf of Mexico. Stage separation. Boost back startup. Incredible views of our Super Heavy booster. And as you can see, the Super Heavy Booster has just experienced a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. However, our ship is still underway with ship all six. Power and telemetry nominal. And we just heard there, ship avionics, power and telemetry nominal. All six engines are lit, as you can see from the GUI there. At the that was SpaceX quality engineering manager, Kate Tice. SpaceX's plan after Starship separated from the main booster was for the spacecraft to reach an altitude of 250 kilometers, then take a turn around most of the Earth and return to the surface, splashing down somewhere north of the Hawaiian island of Kauai. But it really didn't go that way. John Esperger back here in Hawthorne at our webcast desk. We have lost the data from the second stage we had heard a call out that we were internal guidance, which means we were getting near the end of the approximately six-minute burn of Starship. But we haven't uh, gotten any more data since then, so we think we may have lost the second stage. So we would not be into coast phase. We wouldn't be able to come back in an hour or so uh, and possibly get ready for reentry. However, what we do know right now is we had an on-time launch at 7 o'clock. Uh, we got through the boats. First stage looked beautiful with 33 Raptor engines firing. We got the hot staging, you know, the thing that we really wanted to see and impressed. We saw the separation, we saw the flip maneuver. 
we saw the light up of the six Raptor engines on Starship and it headed away. Everything really looked good. But what we do believe right now is that the automated flight termination system on second stage appears to have triggered very late in the burn as we were headed downrange out over the Gulf of Mexico. This second flight test ended with two rapid unscheduled disassembly events, RUDs for short. They're explosions that are part of the design of the Starship's failsafe system for when things don't go well or not so nominally. So in this case, the explosions actually are good things. There are other good things, which we're going to talk about in this episode, but only after getting an overview of the Starship, what it is, why its refueling feature is important, and what SpaceX intends to use it for. We're then going to take a slightly different approach. We're going to take a look at China's response to Starship in the headlines and technologically. And we're going to be doing this with the authors of the book, Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. That's Peter Garrison and Namrita Goswami. Here's our conversation. Hey, Namrita. Peter, thank you for making the time to come on the podcast during Thanksgiving week. Well, thank Thank you you for having us, Laura. Now, you two are regulars, but before getting into taking a deeper look at the Starship flight test, let's do a quick round of introductions with where you are, what you do, and let us know what you're working on now. And Peter, why don't you start? Well, Laura, I'm a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, and I am uh, currently spending most of my time doing a history of the founding of the United States Space Force. But I've recently published a book, The Next Space Race, A Blueprint for American Primacy. And of course, I have co-written with our other guest, Dr. Namrata Goswami, Scramble for the Skies, the great power competition to control the resources of outer space. And Namrata, you're next. Uh, Thank you, Laura. So I am located and based in Montgomery, Alabama, and I teach and research space policy and international relations. And uh, as Peter mentioned, we co-authored the book, The Scramble for the Skies. And right now, I'm working on a book on China's grand strategy and the concept of territoriality. So to get to Starship, Peter, I'm going to start with you. It's really quite likely that most folks in the audience know that SpaceX conducted a second flight test of its Starship on Saturday and with its super heavy booster rocket. But I don't think people understand the physical enormity of it, let alone the implications for space travel. Can you start by giving us a description of really just what the whole Starship launch system is? So the Starship launch system is a uh, two-part rocket, and the bottom part is called Super Heavy, and it is ginormous. Um, You know, it by itself is as tall as the entire Falcon 9 stack fully loaded. And then the starship that's on top of it is like another Statue of Liberty on top of that. So it is an incredibly gargantuan rocket. Uh, It is the most powerful uh, rocket that we've had. You know, it, uh, but size is not really its most important um, attempted virtue. Uh, Certainly, you know, it is, a super heavy class of rocket, you know, in, in the class, 
slightly larger actually than the recent space launch system in terms of its mass to orbit. But what SpaceX is attempting to do with Starship is entirely novel. It is not just trying to get a a very heavy payload to space, uh, which essentially it it demonstrated in, in this recent thing. It is trying to be able to recover and land both parts of the rocket. So the lower rocket is like a super giant Falcon 9 with 33 Raptor engines. And the upper portion is like a absolutely gigantic, you know, whale compared to a guppy of a X-37, you know, like a, a unmanned space shuttle and reusable <laughs> space station, essentially. And what and why SpaceX is doing that is because they want to be able to launch and recover the same system multiple times a day so that they can get cadence up and get costs way down. And we can talk about that more as you like. I also find pretty amazing. I mean, we're talking, you just sort of mentioned a few seconds ago about the payload capacity. And according to the SpaceX website, it can lift up to uh, 150 metric tons of cargo when it becomes fully operational. And I wanted to give the audience a bit of a comparison. And, And this is just in numbers because, I mean, how many times do we actually really imagine a metric ton? But 150 metric tons is what the Starship should be able to lift. And the Crew Dragon and the Dragon lifts six metric tons into LEO. And that is according to uh, SpaceX. But there's something else that I learned from your paper, Peter, that came out earlier in the year that really struck me. And that is kind of coincidentally goes into what I was speaking about in the last two podcast episodes, which has been inadvertently been covering in-space servicing, manufacturing, and assembly, or ISAM. And I've kind of really prick up my ears when I hear about refuelability. Most satellites can't be refueled. I mean, the ones that are actually on orbit now, some are being designed to be refueled, but the ones that are up there doing the job aren't. So refueling is kind of a a thing. It's kind of a goal, a technological goal. But Starship, which is not a satellite, is being designed to be refueled. There is not a design choice that SpaceX makes without a strategic plan behind it. So Peter, why refuelability? What's the plan? Well, let's start with the fact that Starship, which is the upper stage, is unlike any other previous upper stage in that it is designed to land and not just to land on earth, but to land on any and all rocky bodies within the solar system. So, you know, Elon Musk wanted this rocket initially not to pursue some particular market niche, but rather to be able to build a a civilization on Mars at a certain scale in a certain time period. And in order to do that, he needed a system that was cheap enough and could be launched enough such that people who wanted to pay a ticket, you know, could essentially spend the cost of a house and be able to go such that he could build a million person city on Mars. Well, that creates an entirely different design constraint. And so not only do you need to be able to get 100 to 150 metric tons into low earth orbit, you need to get that 100 to 150 tons onto the surface of Mars or onto the surface of the moon, uh, if, if uh, like in their HLS contract for NASA. So in order to put 
this enormous amount of payload that you can get off the Earth further on down the line into, into the solar system, you've exhausted most of your propellant in getting that payload to low Earth orbit. So if you want to go further, you have to be able to refuel. And so, you know, from the beginning, SpaceX has wanted to have the ability to put all that payload further out. And so what they, you know, the two design things that they did was, first of all, to create a shaped aeroshell that could survive atmospheric reentry and something with legs that can land uh, somewhere. And of course, you know, their, their first, you know, sort of foray into Starship was with Grasshopper showing that they could, you know, uh, pop up and control and land. But, you know, what they what they eventually want to be able to do is to refuel multiple times in low Earth orbit so that they're fully tanked to go to Mars, to go to the moon in order to land and get back off those bodies. And so, you know, they've chosen their propellant choice, you know, which is a storable hydrocarbon methane specifically so that, you know, that is easy to handle and because you can manufacture that on Mars and uh, and because it is easy to refuel. And so all of this is part of a grand plan to enable a tremendous potential scale of activity. And I'll just to, to you know, put that you were nice enough to give a sense of what a 100 metric tons is. But, you know, I also want to sort of put into perspective what they're talking about in the long term. So, you know, if you think about everything that humanity has ever put up into space, it amounts to, you know, less than 20,000 metric tons. You know, a single starship, if it operates daily the way Elon Musk wants, could put in 100,000 metric tons annually. And that's, that's a lot. That's essentially a, uh, an aircraft carrier worth of mass. And then, you know, if you do 10, that's a million metric tons. And if you build as many as they've done Falcon 9s, you know, which is 10, uh, you know, sorry, 100 starships, that's 10 million metric tons per year, which is just astounding when you think about, you know, what could be possible. So I'll, I'll stop there. Well, no, don't stop there, because I think that goes right into the whole point that if this becomes possible, if this if this launch system becomes operational in the way uh, that everyone hopes, that it's going to dramatically reduce launch costs, right? And, and right. what's the scale of that, that reduction, just so that, you know, we understand what that means? So, you know, to, to talk about what that means, let me, let me give you a couple different ways in which that could play out. So, you know, SpaceX probably won't achieve its long-term goal immediately. So it still, you know, has to make money. So, you know, a lot of analysts are sort of thinking that they will try to price um, Starship to be competitive with Falcon Heavy. And then, you know, if that happens, we're still expecting it to, to drop like 40% you know, from about $1,500 per kilogram down to below $1,000 to, to about 970 But, you know, Elon Musk is hoping that within two to three years, it could get down to as low as $10 million a launch. And that would be 15 times lower than today's lowest price. And that means a lot. So, you know, you don't get one starship as a sortie to the moon. You have to take on the order of 10 or 11 but that still means that, you know, the, the price to the moon could essentially drop by 
a quarter in the near term to about, you know, about $1 billion to the moon instead of four for SLS. But in the longer term, down to like $110 million for a, a lunar sortie. And that means that for the same dollar, you could essentially have 40 times the lunar program that we currently have planned, 40 times that cadence. So that's that's enormous. And then if you can truly get to, you know, that kind of, you know, one fifteenth launch cost and, you know, hundreds of metric tons, you know, a day with even just one, you know, you're now positioning yourself where big ideas that have been around for a long time of large space stations and space-based solar power satellites now become possible. And on the sort of the, the extreme end of that, is that if he really were to, you know, build a hundred starships, you know, to lift his 10 million metric tons, <laughs> that's enough launch that you essentially could solve global climate change with space solar power in a matter of years. I mean, it's just, it is such a potentially gargantuan change. It's sort of difficult to even understand. That's why people talk about it as the starship singularities, that if it works, so much changes afterwards that it's very hard to predict. So now with that out of the way as a foundation, in Saturday's second attempt, the hope was for the Starship to make a roughly 90-minute trip around most of the Earth before splashing down a few hundred miles north of Hawaii. But both the rocket and the Starship exploded separately. And I kind of like to understand, you know, what went wrong and also what went well. Sure. So, you know, if we if we look, think back to... The, well, first of all, let's talk about what very well, and that is that they got the launch license and they were able to launch again. You know, so that I think was among the biggest concerns of, of those of us, you know, was would the government give them the permission to advance the technology, you know, which is so critical to maintaining our, you know, our, our space power advantage. But they did. So, you know, that's terrific. Now, Let's talk about what happened in the first launch. So in the first launch, they took a chance. They wanted the data to see what it would do with the launch pad. And, and I'm going to jump know, the, in the, real quick just for everybody. That first launch was in April of this year, right? You're talking about the first launch. Yep. So that's the in first April. Launch in April. Okay. So, you know, that launch, you know, they, uh, they essentially destroyed the bottom of their landing pad, excavated a huge amount of material, likely kicked it up to uh, to hurt several of the engines. What was extremely impressive was even with several engines out, it was able to maintain good control authority and uh, and you know move itself up you know to the point at which it failed to achieve st- uh, stage separation and subsequent um, launch. Well, on that basis, SpaceX, you know, already had had ideas about what it wanted to do. It, it installed this brand new water-cooled steel plate, which appears, uh, everything I've heard so far, to have operated fairly well. Certainly, none of the engines were destroyed, and it was amazing to watch these new, which, by the way, they changed out the entire control architecture. So instead of using hydraulics, they were using electrics now, but you saw all 33 engines just continue picture perfect to staging and then shut down to the remaining three engines, you know, picture perfect, and then uh, do this amazing hot staging where they were able to light up uh, the second stage, which they weren't able to do before. Starship 
itself, all six engines lit up and it, you know, appeared to be going, you know, perfectly up and out. Now, you know, we don't have all the facts that are in, but it looks like the booster stage, the first stage, attempted to do its its flip over and boost back maneuver. And there's speculation that that in the boost back, you know, not all the engines, uh, you know, fired up the way they were supposed to. And so, you know, rather than risk, you know, any kind of an uncontrolled boost back and landing, you know, they, they terminated it. The second stage, you know, I still haven't seen, you know, solid analysis. It's still a bit of a puzzle because it looked like everything was going absolutely beautifully. Um, and then, you know, it either, you know, it either self-terminated or they terminated or they lost signal and it terminated. But for some reason, you know, uh, Starship terminated almost, you know, where it needed to be um, after what looked like a novel. So whether or not it, it was, you know, veering off course or, you know, the lack of, uh, of signal, you know, caused it to self-terminate, you know, I'm sure that it was because they were being extremely cautious because, of course, in this particular, you know, flight profile, you know, a lot of it's over the oceans, but not all of it is. And if they can't know exactly where the thing is going ballistically, I think they erred on the side of, of caution. Now, the unfortunate thing about, you know, both those two is that we in the audience didn't get to see, you know, an attempted, you know, landing or, or belly flop of either. And what we didn't get uh, was the data on uh, Starship's attempted reentry, you know, w- which was critical data that I know SpaceX was hoping to get. They did meet, you know, their their primary goal was to successfully achieve the hot staging uh, of the light of the second tube. So they got their primary goal met, but their secondary goals, you know, uh, in particular, you know, I think they could have hopefully learned more from the boost back maneuver as well as from the reentry. And and so we're going to have to wait for a subsequent thing. Now, fortunately, manufacturing things in steel and at scale, it means that they can turn fast and that it can be, you know, less expensive to do this kind of testing so we can hope that they'll move fast and hopefully they'll be able to diagnose exactly what went wrong, um, both cases such that we can see even more progress next time. But just to emphasize, Starship did make it to space, which is pretty amazing for a second launch of something with an unprecedented amount of complexity. You know, 33 engines on the first stage, six engines on the second stage, hot staging, you know, which has never been done like this before and a brand new stage, you know, uh, zero launch pad. I think they got up to roughly 150 kilometers. It may have gone beyond. I, I, that was the last thing I saw was like 148 or 149. Yeah, they were never supposed so to get, they, they got close. very close to orbital velocity. But, yeah. You know, they were never planning to make orbital velocity because they were hoping to splash down you know, a little north of Hawaii, I think. Um, yep. About 300 miles north of Hawaii was 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 the idea, but anyway, let's get on to Namurtha. You have been waiting patiently, standing by. Thank you so much. But with just that introduction, Peter just gave us, you know, with tonnage, with uh, the ambition. I want to know deep down in the core, what do the Chinese think, or how do they feel about Starship? Yeah, that's a great question to start, especially because uh, Starship is viewed by China as connected to the U.S. Artemis program. 
that hopes to land astronauts on the moon by 2025, 2026. So the first reaction that I could see from Chinese media and in interviews that space uh, Chinese aerospace engineers uh, gave to the Chinese media was that they saw this as successful and also uh, not successful in many aspects. So the first thing that actually kind of got my attention were the headlines of the Western media and the Chinese media. So while in the West, the media was much more favorable, saying that this is, after all, a success, the largest, uh, you know, the biggest uh, space uh, rocket that has ever been tested and Starship being able to do what Peter and you just were discussing. The Chinese media tended to show it as rocket booster burns up uncontrolled and also that it was a failed test. So that was what basically caught my attention. But then once you go beyond the headlines, the responses were much more interesting, especially when it came from the engineering community. So they said two things. First, as Peter was mentioning to you, uh, many of the uh, aerospace engineers pointed out in the interviews that they gave that the SpaceX tests, first, first of all, the, uh, the 33 Raptor engines coming on, that was a spectacular success. The hot staging they recognize is a very difficult feat, and that was a success. So they basically recognize that these are big achievements, unlike what happened in the, uh, the first test in April that you both discussed. But then they went on to express certain concerns. And so then they pointed out that when you look at the Starship and how the test went about, it only tells you that the design of the Starship is not mature yet, and one of the concern that uh, Huang Shishang, who is a very renowned Chinese aerospace engineer, he did a diagnosis and he said that SpaceX and Elon Musk might have underestimated the challenges of building such a heavy lift rocket and that they should probably take more time. And before testing, they should basically have much more uh, surety. What I get from that is that they're pointing out that while SpaceX is setting the narrative in the U.S. that, oh, we did this, we already told you that we cannot, we're not thinking about a complete success, even if we do uh, hot stage and separation, that's a great deal. The Chinese are saying that that's not the way to do it. It's still a very immature system. So that's what I get from their uh, media responses and interviews. Very mixed, uh, both a recognizing of the success and also pointing out that it's not a mature system yet. And then finally ending with a very conclusive statement, that is that because of this, the U.S. Artemis program is going to fall behind and will not reach its deadline. And then the cost of building Starship will escalate to the point that it might not become possible for U.S. to do it within a sustainable budget. Don't the Chinese have a certain fire lit under their bums about this because you know what is the genesis of their super heavy rocket that they're also working on that we haven't really seen because it's also pretty immature i mean what is the genesis of the long march 9 and and what is it and how will it be used yeah sure so i mean they have given us the time of their test which is 2030 which is about 7 years from today and so uh yes they do have a long march 9 super super heavy uh rocket and so what was interesting was that in 2016 when the design of the long march 9 was put out it was an expendable rocket like the space launch system uh the long march 9 as originally designed in its expendable form, had the capacity to lift about 150 tons 
to low Earth orbit and 50 tons to lunar transfer orbit. But then what is interesting is that since about last year, November, these Chinese scientists that are designing the rocket started talking about how they wanted to make this rocket reusable. And then this year, during China's uh, Space Flight Day on April 24th, that is the day when China first launched to space in 1970 with their first satellite, uh, they declared that they're going to make the Long March 9 reusable, keeping the same launch capability. And so that's where they are today. They have gone through the feasibility testing. They are starting to now build the capability to make this rocket reusable. And then what is interesting is that uh, one of the senior rocket designers from the China Academy of Launch Vehicle Technology, Gu Mengkeng, he gave an interview where he pointed out that the baseline model of the Long March 9 will be a three-stage rocket with the first stage reusable. And that's going to be able to carry about 50 tons to Earth-Moon transfer orbit. And in his interview, he pointed out that the baseline model of the Long March 9 that is going to be tested in 2030 will be crucial for the construction of the lunar permanent base and mining facilities that China is hoping to build in collaboration with Russia by 2036. So in time, 2030 is the first test. And by 2036, it will be a much more mature system. And then the second model of the Long March 9 will be two-stage reusable, but that, he pointed out, will be tested only around 2040. So it seems like despite Starship testing in 2023, they have not moved up their testing for the Long March 9 rocket. Today, what they have put out, at least in terms of open source data that you can find, is that they have successfully built a large propellant storage tank, which according to the designer is a key capability for a big rocket like this. So before China was able to build about a five meter diameter tank for the Long March 5, which is their workhorse today with the capability to lift about 25 tons to low Earth orbit. And that actually launched their Mars mission as well and the Chang'e missions. The Long March 9 will require a propellant storage capability of about 10 meters, and they have successfully built that in the last six years. So that's the data we have in terms of where they are. And I'll I'll finally end by saying that they are testing much smaller rockets in terms of reusable capability. One of the technology that they tested, it's called the YF-100N engine uh, that is being built by the Academy of Aerospace Propulsion Technology. And so they use 3D printing, automatic wielding, and intelligent assembly to build it. But uh, as as to your question about the Long March 9, that's where they are today. Now, the both of you, as we've said before, uh, co-authored Scramble for the Skies. Both the U.S. and China see these giant rockets as game changers, but such a rocket may not mean the same in each country strategically for their own scramble for the skies, pardon the pun, it was low-hanging fruit. But seriously, this is strategic competition. This is about logistics, and amateurs think in tactics while professionals think in logistics, right? So what are their goals? Are, are they actually the same? But Because they are both building these massive rockets to take a lot of mass up and off of Earth. Nami, do you want to like chip away at that first? Yeah, sure. So actually, the Long March 9 rocket, there is great clarity as to why they are building it. 
And this is not just coming from the scientists or the designers, but now a heavy lift rocket is part of China's uh, five-year plans, and they have included it in their white papers. So they're very serious about why they're building this rocket. So there are three goals that the designers have identified. One is, as I mentioned, to help China build that research station that they have announced uh, in collaboration with Russia on the moon by 2036. Second, and this is where I think it departs from Starship and the U.S. space policy. So in Chinese policy and official statements, including by the designer of the rocket, uh, the Long March 9 will be utilized to construct space-based solar power satellites in, in, uh, in space and to lift about 10,000 tons. So that is why they are so much focused on making the Long March 9 reusable because as of today, the Long March 5 is able to lift one kilogram for about $3,000, whereas the Long March 5 is forecasted. They don't have the uh, figures. Means Long March 9. Uh, Long March 9, sorry. Whereas the it's Long okay. March 9 is forecasted to lift about a kg for $1,500, so bringing the cost down by half. And that's the hope that when you build the first space-based solar power satellite, the Long March 9 will play a big, very big role. And then finally, the Long March 9 is also seen as the rocket to achieve some of China's own Mars ambitions. So China announced very uh, long-term Mars ambitions, not just sending robotic probes to Mars, but also doing sample return and finally building a human base by 2045. And the Long March 9 is seen as the key rocket for these particular ambitions that they have put out. So they're very clear in terms of the strategic implication, unlike the U.S., where Elon Musk is obviously saying that the starship will be used for building a colony on Mars or settle Mars. But I haven't heard that kind of conversations coming from uh, U.S. space policy. Uh, Peter, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen it. You know, I think the fundamental, you know, difference here is that, you know, Starship is an entirely private sector initiated thing for a private sector individual, you know, philanthrocapitalist, you know, goal of making humanity multiplanetary. And, you know, <laughs> the United States doesn't have a, a policy or driver with, res with respect to Starship. You know, Starship, of course, hopes to compete. Uh, for national security payloads. But when asked, you know, the Space Force representative said, you know, hey, I don't even know if we, you know, have a need for super heavy launch that that depends entirely on on the threat and, and the requirement. And then, you know, NASA is only providing aid to Starship purely, you know, for a, a human landing system, you know, opportunity. And probably because it was, you know, the, the most competitive bid at the time. So, you know, the United States has certainly taken increasingly small uh, bites towards, you know, talking about, you know, a broader, you know, wanting to grow the cislunar economy, you know, having some sort of vision, um, you know, but this is very different from China. You know, China clearly saw where Elon was going with Starship, I, you know, it had a different name, BFR at the time, um, and realized like, hey, we're going the wrong direction here. You know, but if you look at where the United States invested its dollars, you know, the United States invested on the order of, you know, $90 billion in an architecture that was fully expendable, that was only aimed, you know, at human beings getting back in a very semi-permanent manner to the moon. Um, and, uh, and I don't think, you know, we have fully embraced 
uh, or thought of how to use, you know, Starship as a nation. Whereas China, I think, immediately grasped the logistic, you know, importance of reusability, you know, that to the to to the scramble uh, for the skies, and so they've revectored their state program, and not just their state program, they have encouraged private, in, in air quotes, private sector companies, um, but at least companies that are able to take capital in and attempt to, to create a, a profit, um, they're also going after at least first stage reusability. So, you know, I think, I think China as a state has at the policy level really grasped, you know, why reusability is so important you know, I think we are lucky in that, you know, the FAA has been enabling to Starship and we are lucky that, you know, we had the right people in NASA to select it as HLS, but we have not been able to do the kind of wholesale revectoring that China did where they're just like, well, why are we going to spend all this money on an expendable system when reusability has so many advantages? Let's change gears. And, you know, of course, China has the tremendous benefit from being able to sit back and see what works and what doesn't work um, in this extremely, you know, public displays, you know, that that SpaceX is is putting on. And so we can expect that if the United States succeeds in keeping its lead, it will be a short-lived lead that, you know, this technology will prove itself, I think, as being, you know, the, the, the right next answer and therefore it will proliferate. And so if the United States, you know, wants to keep its top position, it's going to have to move fast to at least enjoy the market first mover advantages. And it's going to not going to have to not rest on its laurels. You know, we should probably have a national policy that deliberately encourages uh, reusable launch vehicles and high flight rates. And let's be plain, we don't have that. I want to just sort of circle back, though, on something that you said, Peter, and pose this question to Namurtha about space and national security, because the things that you listed, um, Namurtha, for the Long March 9 were all kind of peace-loving, civil space sort of stuff, right? Which those of us who watch China know that, yeah, there might be more to that than meets the eye. Is there not a national security piece to the Chinese goal set for the long March 9? I would say that there is, because uh, if you think about their entire space strategy and thinking, it comes from a few civil military strategy, right? Integration strategy. So while they are developing their long March heavy lift rocket for some of the goals that sound very civil, for example, while talking about a research base on the moon, building mining capabilities, building a space-based solar power satellite, uh, building this logistic system that can get them to the Lagrange points, both Earth, Moon, and Earth, Sun, and then uh, Mars, they all look very civilian. But if you look at the planning and the funding and the conceptualization, it's very much for also dual-use purposes, right? So space-based solar power satellite can help Chinese military. Uh, they can also build this, this large construction, constructed systems in space that can uh, create presence. They can also be utilized for dual capability. For one of the interesting concepts that the Chinese Academy of Military Sciences and others are talking about is how can you use a heavy lift rocket to build large orbital platforms in low Earth orbit 
that can then be utilized for both debris removal, but also they can be populated by uh, very small satellites. And then what they can do is that enable with artificial intelligence, they can actually target or remove threats that come to Chinese satellites, right? So if you look at their conceptualization and their uh, strategic thinking, it's a lot about that entire end-to-end system that has advantages and that builds advantages for China's military as well. Namrita, Peter, thank you so much for your time and have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. Have a th- have great Thanksgiving yourself. Thank you. And thank you for having Laura, goodbye. Thank you so much for having us and have a great Thanksgiving. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.